Life-changing power. That's the subject matter today. Life-changing power. Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Life-changing power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for releasing it into our lives today causing it to touch us, change us, get down on the inside and rearrange us, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name. And everybody said, wow. <laughs> everybody said amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this. This is Paul talking. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. How many of you believe the word works in believers? Wow. Thank you. The word works in believers. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. You know, there are a lot of funny stories out even in my own family my wife uh, she would talk to each of our children and when they were little they were never too little for Ruthie to talk to them and ask them if they wanted to accept Jesus and uh, one of our children uh, told mom no uh, because they thought we were getting a busload ready to leave I guess right after church <laughs> and they said no and later when I said why don't you want to accept Jesus well I thought you were getting ready to go I mean, leave. I didn't want to leave yet, right? Another one of our children uh, told Ruthie no and then turned right around and asked her what was for lunch. <laughs> like, she wasn't ready. And uh, the subject was just a little, a little too serious uh, for that child of ours. Thank God today all of our children are serving the Lord and our grandchildren are being raised in homes where God is honored. And the peace that passes all understanding is instilled in me because God is taking care of our family in that light. But a lot, of, uh, a lot of people are confused about what the Bible teaches. And here are some of the responses from other children uh, when asked questions in a Bible quiz given to middle school students. One of the answers they gave was, Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Another answer were, was Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. The third one was, the seventh commanded is, thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> the fourth one was, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. I really like that one. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Number five was, the followers of Jesus were called the Twelve Disciples, D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S. My favorite, though, is this. David killed Galahad, who was one of the Finkelsteins. <laughs> now, the last one is a Christian should have only one wife. That's called monotony. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. 
My wife said, don't, don't read that one. <laughs> All right, the Apostle Paul had preached only three weeks in Thessalonica before he was run out of town by the angry mob. But he left behind a group of believers who formed a church. He wrote them this letter to encourage them in the face of opposition. Our nation is losing its moral compass because many of our leaders are no longer considering the Bible to be a reliable guide for truth. I was shocked to read in 2005 the state of the Supreme Court in Colorado overturned a death penalty on a convicted murderer because the jurors had consulted with Bible, reading Bible scripture while deliberating over the sentence. The court ruled the Bible constituted an improper outside influence. They said the Bible constituted an improper outside influence. But I agree with the American statesman Daniel Webster. He wasn't just a guy who wrote a dictionary. He was a good Christian man, a good preacher. Daniel Webster, who wrote, If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if, but if we and our posterity neglect uh, its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. I want to read that again. Daniel Webster wrote, if we abide by the principles sought in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if we, in our posterity, neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. I want to consider today three truths about this book and how important this book is to our lives. I love to get help from God in finding ways to encourage the children of God to stay with the book. Eat it. Read it. Digest it. Let it get down on the inside of you. Let it change you. One of the things I want to share with you, the first point is that the Word of God came through ordinary people. The Word of God came through ordinary people. Paul referred to his preaching to them when he wrote, You accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God. Paul had the audacity to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't just a story from his imagination, but it was the word of God. And as we're reading his words 2,000 years later, we still consider it to be the word of God. The thing that makes the Bible totally unique is that it was written over a period of 1,500 years and involved uh, some 40 different people in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. These were ordinary people who were inspired by the extraordinary spirit of God. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So really, is the Bible unique? You bet it is. As Christians, we don't ascribe to any kind of holy dictation theory. God spoke through all different kinds of ordinary people. Listen to this. Moses at one time was a prince of Egypt writing in the wilderness. Daniel was a prime minister writing from a palace in Iraq. Paul was a prisoner writing from behind bars. Amos was a farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. And Matthew worked for the IRS of all places to work. God spoke in different ways to different people. He thundered his message to Moses to Jeremiah, God's word was like a fire in his bones. 
to Elijah, God spoke in a still small voice. God spoke to Daniel through dreams and visions. The Bible is written for all people. It is the world's best-selling book. Still is today. The world's best-selling book. The full Bible has been translated into 518 different languages. Portions of the New Testament have been translated into 2,798 languages as of last week. So another week has gone by, and I don't know how many more uh, translations of the New Testament in different languages are out there. The fact that the Bible was written down by all these ordinary people convinces me it is truly the Word of God. Mankind's not smart enough, but God is. Amen? These 40 men who wrote the Bible lived in different times, different cultures, and wrote in different languages, and yet the Bible has a common theme. God's Word is communicated through ordinary people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Some people claim the Bible is just a collection of old myths and fables. Others call it the good book, but they don't consider it to be God's book. But for those of us who have studied it for decades, we believe it is the Word of God. Point number two. The word of God is at work in us. Paul went on to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. When you are thirsty, you can drink water. That water starts to work in you to relieve your thirst. When you are hungry, you can eat food, and that food works in you to give you nourishment and strength. When you breathe in, Oxygen goes into your lungs and it works in you to give you energy. Without water, without food, or oxygen, we would die. The word of God, I submit to you, is even more important. Jesus told Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible's like living water that quenches your spiritual thirst. It's like bread that nourishes your soul. It's like life-giving oxygen as God inspires you. The Bible says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Since this is God's word, we should be careful not to criticize the author. To what extent is God's word at work in your life? Third point. The word of God produces opposition. Sorry to tell you that. You know, you got good news and bad news. It's a bad news, but it's true. The word of God produces opposition. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. Paul faced hostility and opposition in every city where he preached. Paul referred to the Jewish troublemakers who had driven him out of town and were now opposing the believers in Thessalonica. He writes that the Jewish people killed God's prophets and even killed the Son of God. Paul himself had been one of those who opposed Christians. Paul approved the death of Stephen and even cared for and held the coats of the men who stoned him to death. 
When you believe the word of God, you're going to face opposition. Why? I'm going to give you three reasons. A, the gospel opposes the ugliness of sin. People get buried in sin. And they don't want to hear you tell them they're wrong. The Bible teaches us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We're all sinners. Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. If you listen to the news, what, and, and, and what do you see? Violence, wickedness, cover-ups. However, the problem in America is the problem of sin, plain and simple. There are social evolutionists who claim humanity is getting better and better. Education and technology are going to move us to a place of human utopia and goodness. It's not happening. We're seeing more and more hideous and horrific acts carried out by people. I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord according to Romans chapter 6 verse 23. B, the gospel forgives undeserving sinners. The gospel announces their salvation for anyone who comes to Christ regardless of how bad they've been. A pastor friend of mine was talking to a prison social worker once. The social worker wasn't a believer. He had a problem with Christian groups coming to the prison and preaching salvation. The social worker said, do you mean to tell me that a convicted murderer or rapist here in this prison who comes to Christ can be forgiven and be just as accepted by God as someone like me who has lived a good and honest life? And the pastor said, yes. The prison worker said, well then, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. You know what they call that? The scandal of grace. A person can live like the devil all their lives and on their deathbed accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen? I'm happy to report to you, my friend said, that that social worker later became a Christian and a leader in his church. That's the working word. Amen? C, the gospel predicts punishment for sin. Another reason people don't like the Bible is that it's clear in its message that God will one day punish sin. It's not a popular message. Paul wrote this about the Jews who were opposing the gospel. said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. A few days before he was crucified, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and predicted its destruction because they had not recognized him as God in the flesh. In 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city. Paul wrote this letter a few years before it happened, but even when he wrote this letter, the Jews were already in a war against the Romans. Paul saw this as God's punishment on a city for rejecting Jesus and opposing the gospel. Most people don't like to hear about hell, which is God's ultimate punishment for sin. I've been praying for God to send us a spiritual awakening in America. I've studied the previous spiritual awakenings in our nation, and I want to walk or talk about the first great spiritual awakening in this nation. Happened in 1730. When there was just 13 British colonies, one of the pastors God had used to spiritually revive the people in New England was Jonathan Edwards. Any of you ever heard of him? Jonathan Edwards. Just wondering. Um, he's a pastor in 1730. He preached 
a famous sermon called Sinners in the Woods Bumpkin, Angry God. Jonathan Edwards wasn't some backwards woods bumpkin. He was a highly educated theologian. He had graduated from Yale and married the daughter of the first president of Yale. Back in the days when Yale and Harvard and Princeton were all founded to train preachers. What are they famous for now? Training lawyers. Kind of a huge change, amen? Jonathan Edwards ended up being president of Princeton when he died at 55. Maybe we need to hear sermons like his if we're going to see a spiritual awakening. Here's an excerpt from his message, and I quote, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again are in the hands of an angry God. It is nothing but God's hand of mercy that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there's no other reason to be giving why, given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Jonathan Edwards wasn't a hellfire and brimstone preacher yelling and pounding the pulpit, from what I can tell by looking at history. But I can tell you what history records about what happened in that service. Jonathan Edwards read his messages in a high-pitched voice, but with no emotion. And yet, there are reports of people in the congregation weeping and holding on to pews and posts of the church building to keep from falling into hell. He proclaimed God's punishment for sin, but he also offered God's invitation for salvation. He concluded his message with these words, and I quote, And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking that we're very and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming that we're very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. In conclusion today, I want to share these words with you. The word of God has a supernatural power to change lives. Nine. 
1949, the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention appointed a Texas pastor by the name of Dr. Julius Hickerson to serve as a missionary in Columbia. His specific task was to build a seminary in Cali to train Colombian pastors to share the gospel and start churches. However, before he could ever build the seminary, Dr. Hickerson died in a small plane crash over the remote jungles of the mountains between Colombia and Venezuela. Two years later, a delegation of natives from the interior came to the Baptist Mission Station in Barranquilla. These natives announced to the missionaries that they were followers of Jesus. The missionaries were surprised because they hadn't sent missionaries into those remote areas. They asked how the natives heard the gospel. The new believers explained that they had found a book that came from heaven. It was a leather-bound New Testament written in Spanish with the name Julius Hickerson. Engraved on the cover. Only one member of the tribe could read Spanish, so he read it in several villages. Everyone in these villages became Christians in several churches had been started using nothing more than the model in this book from heaven. Julius Hickerson died in a plane crash before he could build a seminary, but his Bible survived. These Colombian natives read it, and they gave their lives to Christ. That's the life-changing power of the Word of God. People living in destitute villages, no televisions, no cars, no luxuries. They got a hold of a, a Bible, and one person that spoke Spanish could read that Bible. And people in three villages got saved. What in the world is America's excuse? What is America's excuse? We are without excuse. Amen? I'm just gripped by what God can do with this book. I'm gripped by it. I'm praying for the healing of a nation. I'm praying for change in our country. I'm praying for the peace that passes all understanding to be in the hearts and lives of the American people. There are millions of people in our nation that have no idea that they're one breath away from being in eternity. You never know, do you really? There's more gospel being preached in the world today than any, at any time in the history of mankind. I mean, every preacher with a telephone out there is preaching the gospel over the airwaves. And there are a whole lot of people watching church from home. Amen. I want you to continue to pray for me as I pray for you. I'm asking God... To empower my words. 
with the power of the Holy Ghost and empowered in a way that it touches the lives of people and makes them want to embrace God, makes them want to embrace change. There are so many things that have gone wrong in our country and some of those things that have gone wrong in our country have crept into the church. Heresy has crept into the church on the back of truth. Um, you know, I mean, in the South, uh, where I was raised, you call it loose living. People think loose living's accepted by God now. It's okay. We've evolved. It's all right, you know. And it's come right on into the church. I believe in loving people. If people are living lives that are not pleasing to God, I'm just not going to put them in the leadership, but I'm not going to stop loving them. But, and however, it doesn't mean that I'm accepting of lifestyles that are contrary to the word of God because I don't, and I won't, and you shouldn't either. But we should love people, amen, and let them see the hand of God working in our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me after being in a few church services and saying it outright. I didn't even know what was going on in their lives, and they said, I came to this church, I started reading my Bible, and I find out that this, this, and this is wrong in my life and needs to change. Will you pray for me? What a dynamic testimony. Amen. Stories like that one in South America, it just messes me over. Here we are. I don't just have the New Testament. I've got the New and the Old Testament in my grip right now. I don't know how many Bibles you have at home, but in the time we start wearing some of them out, amen, let's feed on them. Let's let them change our lives, amen. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, I want to thank you in Jesus' name for reminding us about the power of the written word, your word, spoken through some 40-some-odd individuals that penned uh, the words that your Holy Spirit led them to pen, and it became what we call the canon of the Scriptures today. Because of that, and so many people being involved, some people have said, well, I, I don't trust the whole Bible because mankind was involved in it. Well, Father, I declare words of faith to you today that if you can't be in charge of how one book got put together, I can't trust you for anything. But I believe you were completely in charge of how this book came together. And I can trust you for everything, Father. Lord, help us in Jesus' mighty name to sense our deep need for you in our lives above all else. Help us, Father, to place your work in our lives above all of the entertainment of this world, all of the things that are going on, all the flashy things, how we can just hit a light switch and a light comes on. We can make toast instantly. We can heat up food or coffee in a microwave oven. Everything's instant for us, Father. And it takes work to get in and dig around in the Word and to pray and to allow it to change our lives. It takes application. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, to put forth the effort because it's worth it. Thank you, Father, for the way your word changed the lives of those people in those three remote villages in South America. That story just grips me. Father, save America, I pray in Jesus' name. Lead God and direct us. Help us to cast all of our cares over on you, not to be buried. We know that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump. 
You warned your disciples about that when they got on that boat and realized they only had one loaf of bread. Now they were all arguing with each other. Who should have brought more food? And Jesus got on to them and said, I just got through feeding 4,000 men plus women and children. We just got through feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. And you're worried about food. You're worried about one loaf of bread. He said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And Herod, that's what you need to look out for. Because if you're not careful, you'll try to trust politicians to meet all of your needs instead of God meeting all your needs. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us, Father. For times we doubted you as being the all provider for our lives, the Father that cares for us. Forgive us all of our sins and shortcomings, Father. Cleanse us afresh and anew with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for the Lamb's Book of Life. I thank you every day for my name being recorded there. Some people think that's rather conceited of me. Mm, It's faith, Father, not conceit. It's faith. My name's in that book, and I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And everyone in this room needs to decide whether they believe their name's in that book or not. And pray a prayer to you, Father, in Jesus' name, either thanking you for the name being in the book or thanking you for saving them, Father, and then thanking you for their name being in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. Father, we still live in this world day to day. We're in it, not of it. And as we often do, Father, before we leave this room, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus that you watch over us, you go with us, Father, be in our homes with us. May everyone that enters our home senses the presence of your spirit there, Father, and your love enveloping them. I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you and fellowship together if you can.